mean, there was really nothing more to it except there was, I had come up high on cocaine. I needed to come down. I found some pills and I figured this is really, really painful, uh, this life. So I'm going to take these pills. I went, I did that, somehow got to the hospital, don't remember. And I remember the psychiatrist saying, you know, they, they kind of give you this, they pump your, you know, they do this charcoal thing. And then um, he said, are you going to do this again? I said, no, I'm not. And then they said, okay, discharge. And they let me go. So I think I did. And it was actually a cry for help. And I really knew that I was gonna, if I was going to get help, I would have to do it myself. I would have to reach out and make that decision on my own. Welcome to the 1000 Days Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I am not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone who doesn't drink alcohol. And I spend every waking moment of my life helping other people do the same. Like right now. Wham, bam. Thank you, man. Who are we going to be talking to today? No messing about. We're just going to get straight into it. We're going to be talking to Joy Andrioli. Joy is the author of The Recovery Cycle, a contemporary guide that blasts open the blocks to keep sober people from reaching their greatest potential for all addictions and any program. All right. So listen closely. This wonderful woman from California, she's going to get into a lot of stuff that is in her book and uh, really share her story and her journey. Uh, into the depths of uh, despair and then climbing back out again and how she turned that around to create this uh, incredible offering to you good people. And if you want to know more about Joy Andrioli, then email me at method at gmail.com and I will put you in touch with this wonderful lady, okay? And also check out the show notes for uh, ways to get a copy of her book and get into contact with her. So without further ado, I'll shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of Joy Andrioli and myself having a good old chin wag about all things alcohol addiction. Okay, folks, I'm here with a beautiful Joy Andrioli. Where does that name come from, Joy? Everything about it is spelt differently than my brain is used to. Well, Andrioli is uh, Italian. That's where uh-huh. my my grandfather is from, and Joy is J O I is from my mother. I think there's Joy Lansing. There was an actor. She was way ahead of her time. So mm-hmm. I'm spelling the names, you know, like all the different names: Tom, T A U M, whatever. Uh, so she spelled my name like some actress way back in the day. Ah, really interesting. My wife was telling me yesterday how. Her parents came over to America from Korea and decided to name all their kids after famous actresses and actors. My wife's called Liza after Liza Minnelli. There was uh, Peter Parker, Linda Carter, Julie Andrews. <laughs> Very funny. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, so what part of the world did you fall into and how did that mark you as a woman interesting question uh how what part of the world did i fall into so where was i born i was actually Mm. born in hollywood i think that's what you're asking where i come from and i grew up actually in uh i would consider my hometown dana point california it's a beach town and you know lots of surfing lots of lots of alcohol lots of cocaine at the time it was the 70s and and early 80s so it was uh and the 60s actually that's where my my mom's era that's where it really 
that's where I was at the time. Mm. So you grew up in in an environment where taking addictive substances was just part and par for the course, as they say. Well, I would say par for the course for the group that I fell into Mm. and what I saw around me. So it was like, you know, it was a way for me to feel comfortable just with whoever I was. The smart kids or the kids, even the drama kids, that was where I wanted to go. But I was way too shy because... You know, I, I I say that people weren't sources of love. You know, it's what I did with the messages that I got. So so that's how it was my entry and entree into the world of alcohol and drugs was mm. was it was a comfort level that I achieved immediately. And then I saw my 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 uh, siblings, my older siblings, drinking and and doing drugs. So it made it kind of made a lot of sense. I looked up to them. It's funny, isn't it, when uh, you know the these conversations we have around drinking or drugs and recovery they're pretty much most of them are pretty much the same right it's like it's pretty much the same in as much as we just did what everybody else did because that's what people did right it's like it's like if i don't do these things that other people are doing then who like you know what does that mean to me what does that mean to my survival amongst this this species i'm going to be cast out nobody's going to like me and it's it just the more and more I interview people and talk to people and the more and more I coach people, it just seems to be the norm to be addicted, not an unusual thing. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe, but when I look back, I think my, I remember I have one, you're making me think of this one memory of, I had a girlfriend and she was, it was younger. It was when I hadn't even entered high school yet, but I remember going to her house and spending the night and it was the most normal family they had classical music playing in the background. She played the piano. They had a dinner hour and we all sat down for dinner and it was excruciatingly uncomfortable for me. It was excruciating uncomfortable for me. I think so much so that I think I actually called my mother to say, come pick me up and take me home. Mm. And I, so I'm not so sure if it's, if it's everybody was doing it, it was a way it, I just ended up with the people that were doing it because I found it a solution to my discomfort with people. Mm. So if I had found a way to feel comfortable with people, I'm not so sure I would have I would have gone down that road. That said, I do believe that there's a genetic component to to addiction or alcoholism. And I certainly have that in my history as well. So, you know, both of my my siblings are are sober and had a problem. So I don't know for sure if I could just say, oh, you know, it, it was them. It's kind of like, I can't say blame the parents or blame the, I mean, there was something in me that happened that I just couldn't stop. Mm. And I ended up with those people. And really the other thing was I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to continue on that road. And I remember going to a funeral of a 15-year-old who had had a problem and drove off a cliff. I was two years old, one or two years older than him. And I went to, to with the family. And all of us that were going to that that wake, actually, were um, we kind of couldn't wait there because we knew there were going to be drugs. We knew there was going to be a lot of drinking, including the mother of the person that died. So I knew in my heart and what I valued that something was wrong with that. Mm. And so I, I don't know if that... That's a little different from what you were saying, but I certainly feel that there was something in me 
that led me to these people. Yeah, I mean, what I'm what I'm learning as I evolve, this man ape of my evolves is um, what you're what you're talking about. There is a level of self awareness I just did not have as a youngster, and I think that self awareness, stroke, critical thinking lens. I would go so far to say that in my working class upbringing and that kind of social structure, it wasn't really the way that we were designed and created. We we were more like the guys in the Matrix, uh, the guys and girls in the Matrix who didn't know they were in the Matrix. You sound like a, there was a little bit of Thomas Anderson about you as you was growing up. And I, my wife is from California, and I've been lucky enough to see her side of the family, which is more academic and more more into critical thinking and less likely to go down the same road that I went. So I'm so I'm kind of seeing both sides of how this whole addiction monster can unfold or not. You know, because I do I do have like lots of friends who are like super woke, super with it, super yoga leotardy, super Zen meditation masters, and they all still get wankered every weekend on alcohol, thinking it's normal. I mean, that that's the thing that draws me and my old philosophy around yeah, this, this is a biggie. This alcohol thing is a is a biggie. Um, but when did you realize you had to change something then? When when did you realize, I mean, you, you mentioned the weight there, but when did it get to a point where, you know, this this is a real problem for me? What happened? Well, I knew the moment that I took a drink. I, I just have to say that. I knew right. that eventually I'd have to quit or it was going to kill me because it felt way too good. It just right. felt way too good. But when I knew was, uh, I mean, when I did something was actually after I um, I was ended up in, uh, you know, on a suicide attempt and they let me go and and I didn't really know what to do. And so pretty quickly thereafter, I went to I think I must have gotten drunk again a couple of more times and I ended up in a. Um, in a, I put myself in a recovery facility, a state-run recovery facility, which was in Data Point, and I put myself in for three months. So I knew before my 21st birthday, which here in California, that's the legal age to drink. And you know, I had been using fake IDs for a while. But um, so that's when I knew. And I mean, that's when I did something. But like I said, I knew really early on. Mm. Oh, I'm so I'm so sorry to hear that it got to that point. Is that something you talk about, or is it private to you the suicide attempt? It's just you know, I well, I'm talking about it now. So it was something that maybe I even talk about it in my book. I don't know, but I don't remember. I mean, there was really nothing more to it except there was I had come up high on some cocaine. I needed to come down. I found some pills, and I figured this is really really painful. This life. So I'm going to take these pills. I went, I did that, somehow got to the hospital, don't remember. And I remember the psychiatrist saying, you know, they, they kind of give you this, they pump your, you know, they do this charcoal thing. And then um, he said, are you going to do this again? I said, no, I'm not. And then they said, okay, discharge. And they let me go. Oh, I think I did. And it was actually a cry for help. And I really knew that I was gonna, if, if I was going to get help, I would have to do it myself. I would have to reach out and make that decision on my own. And, you know, that's what I know you coach a lot of people. And that's, you know, that's one thing that's critical is um, 
making that decision that I need help and then following it up with action. Mm. I mean, I'm big on action. If you, if you know anything about me, I'm big on taking, taking that action. So at that point, I, I just suppose I was ready to take the action shortly thereafter. I didn't want to die because mm. I knew it was only going to go two ways. It was going to go death or somehow get into some sort of recovery program, which I did. Mm. I really knew that that was where it was going to end up for me. What was the um, what was the great debate around that time? You know, so you you make a decision that you know you had that 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 near miss, we'll call it. You know, where everything nearly ended, and then you know there's this realization, this spark that's always been there that this is this is not good for me. This is, I need to kind of get out of it. But but was there a debate? Was there was there was there some questions? Was there a difficulty in in getting away from it? I mean, there's a there's a difficult there's there's a difference between the journey and the slog and the grind and the struggle of kind of like getting to where you want to be. But for some people, there's also a real challenge within themselves to even get to the starting line. Right? It's like, yeah, I I want to quit, but I really love it. You know, it's like, was there a part of that in your journey that you had to deal with? I think I had dealt with that, like I said, from the very first time I took a drink until the time I I finally made that decision to get sober. Mm. What, I, what I knew was going to have to happen. So I really did. I, ha- I had years with that struggle. Right, right. Years. Mm. So by the time I got sober, it was as if I knew that I was going to need to somehow work through my fears around being with people. I didn't talk for 12 meeting for 12 years in meetings unless somebody, you know, told me to or asked me to or so I I knew that that was going to be really big that I would have to be get finally figure out how to get comfortable within myself and with other people. Mm. And you know, at that time, people kind of forced themselves on you, you know, like you go that at that time there was only the 12 step program. That was basically it. Maybe there was another fringe program and now there's so many, which is which is great, you know, because it mm. really kind of invites a lot of people uh for whatever their belief system or whatever works for them into recovery and in this transformed life. But at that time when I got sober, it was a 12 step program. Somebody assigned me. She said I'm going to be your your sponsor. And I just did what she said, because I figured she seemed like she was doing it. She was successful enough. And she seemed to have all the answers. So um, I kind of just went with it. I just kind of surrendered to this idea that there was going to be a better way. And that there was, you know, love in the world in a, mm. in a, in a, in a new way that I was going to be able to experience. And that has been my experience. That has been my experience. And it hasn't been by somebody just saying, do it, do, do it my way, do it this way, do it that way. Really, I've got to f- discover my own journey and what's in my own heart in this process. So, you know, and, and it's a continuing process. I continue to, to live this cycle, as you probably know, that mm. I really believe that there's a cycle for whatever program anybody chooses in, um, transforming our my, my, within myself my relationships everything in my life what was your uh, what was your sponsor like like was she hard is, you get is, you get these and, stories and is she like is she oh, like? still still okay do you still, have a do you have a forever then forgive my ignorance uh, you know something she's we have a great friendship mm. and she's still somebody that i confide in that has a you know my my you know you're a coach what i say to people is you know you find somebody with a trustworthy record 
you take a risk on people until they prove they have a trustworthy record. If you're just going to trust somebody or they're going to, you know, I, I'm not going to just do what everybody tells me to do. Although she tells me that I, you kind of did what she told me to do in the mm -hmm. beginning. I was really young. So I did do the things that it wasn't going to harm me calling people, calling her wasn't hurtful. So yes, I still, still to this day. And like you said, some people are real hardline, you know, it works for some people that kind of doesn't work for me, but that's okay. They, every, there's, you know, there's a lid for every pot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a, had a moment. <laughs> it looks like you don't like that. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I had a moment the other day where a, a couple of people in my community, they were, um, they were, they were, they were just about to take a course of action, which I, I felt was a, a mistake. And there was a, my masculine fixed energy came up and I wanted to fly in there like a superhero and, and and uh course correct them and um i think like a few years ago that would have been my mo for sure right and then this time i was able to say hang on a minute you know this this is not going to work like this is not going to work for these people right like it's it's not going to work you're just going to annoy them you're going to piss them off you're going to actually make things worse right like you need to have a different course of action so that's what i was thinking of when i was I was asking you about your your sponsor. I'm always interested in how some people really flourish through, you know, the whole kind of like getting whipped. And then there's those that uh, really flourish with being reminded that everything that they have in order to succeed is within themselves and to and to trust that they've got it, right? Like that that is uh, that's another there's loads of different ways of going about it. I'm being a bit polarizing here, but uh yeah, really interested me, uh, interests me how people react differently. But you know something, the being whipped part, like like what that, uh, I, I, I believe, I can imagine, or I, I believe I know what you're talking about. And what I think that does, it just instills more fear. So the fearful part of me is now going to you know, be afraid to be autonomous and have kind of my own self-directed life. And mm. that's why it doesn't work for me. And as I think fear is really at the at the core of a lot of a lot of addiction, a lot of why people feel the need to do it somebody else's way. They don't know how to, you know, to do to make decisions on their own. Um, you know, ideally, we learn in recovery to if we're helping others and ourselves to, to foster somebody's decision-making process. So I like to call, you know, it's the pros and cons, the prices and the prizes. What's the pri highest, you know, throwing out options, what's the highest possible price you're going to pay for doing that. And what's the prize. And then look mm -hmm. at it, everything, look at, at, look at whatever decision from all angles, because people do have the answer within themselves. And if they don't, I believe it will soon enough come, you know, mm -hmm. and if we make a mistake, okay, move on. You know, we make a mistake. Who's not going to make a mistake, right? It's particularly in this gig. I mean, come on, right? It's like it's it's that it's that old paradox, and it? it's like we don't want to talk about <laughs> we don't want to talk about relapse, but we kind of have to talk about relapse because you know, for a lot of people, it happens, right? And um, yeah, it does. Yeah, it happens. Relapse, relapse happens, and for sure, and it's get back up on the horse. You know, again, is do I do I want to continue with this? And what are the what what led me to that? What what got in the, what got in the way of me maintaining my vision of my sobriety or my recovery for that day? 
Because hmm. re- what is recovery? You know, it's like, it's a process of regaining, I think, of regaining something that's lost or of returning to a normal state of health and mind and wellness. And what's lost is less our connection to our souls. So how, what, how did I lose that connection when I relapsed? When I first put myself in that recovery home after a week, they said, you need three months. And I said, no, I can do it in a week. So I, they went, I went to detox for a week and I said, I got this covered. I, I know what to do. Mm-hmm. I went back out and within a week I was using smoking chokers and doing all kinds of crazy things. So then I put myself back in for three months and it was like having to, and they didn't let me talk to my family Mm. for a month. He said, you cannot have any contact with them. And it's like needing a complete shift in my thinking. I needed to have, you know, something else getting in there besides my own brain. Like like Einstein says, we can't solve the problem with the brain that created it. And that that was definitely wanting me out of fear to go out and use again. So so for these people that relapse, I would say, look, what what let what do you think happened there? Let's look at it. Let's take a blow by blow account and look mm. and see what happened. And sometimes people don't even know. Sometimes people don't know. Yeah. But if it's scary enough. They, you know, they might want to return back to recovery. And in my world, it means it's a process of being an observer of my thoughts and my feelings and my actions progressively aligning with, with what I value and what I hold dear. So I can observe and now I can align what I know is in my heart, who I want to be, what I want to do. Now I can align my actions and it's a progressive. It doesn't happen like, oh, now that I want to be you know, the best possible wife who's just completely kind and loving in all moments. It doesn't mean that that's going to happen. I might, Mm. that animal part of me might come out, you know, Mm. uh, but I can course correct because I have this ability to observe my thoughts and my feelings. And I think we can only do that when we are sober. We don't have, at least I can only do that when I don't have a chemical in my body uh, kind of muddying up me. Yeah, I'll second that, you know. Um, what are you thinking about? I see you looking. What are you thinking? What was I thinking about? I was thinking that I was thinking, and because I was thinking I wasn't grounded and paying attention, I was thinking that. Uh, <laughs> that could happen from time to time. I had a question I was going to ask you, which took me out of my present moment. I apologize. It was um, if you had any thoughts around. So my relapse, for example, happened uh, maybe three and a half years after I stopped, and it was a kapow moment. So it was like divorced, holy shit, don't have a mental map for this, relapse, month later, what an idiot, never again in the next 10 years. So there's that type of relapse. But then there's another relapse I see, which I feel is more challenging to overcome, and that's the continual relapse. So uh, day one, day two, day three, drink. Day one, day two, drink. Day one, day two, three, ten, drink. Like I was wondering in your work and your practice in your research, whether or not you've looked at those two different types of phenomena and you had anything to say on it, really. Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I'm thinking about the people that I worked with or people that I know. And there's one individual I'm thinking of. He has, what do they call him? The hundred and he spent years. He kept relapsing. It was just like you were describing. He just he would mm. get maybe a month and then he'd go back up for a month. He would. And now he's like three and a half years, something like mm. that. And mm. 
for him, he just said, I like to ask people because I think everybody has a different answer. And he said, you know, my story, my, he said, I, I don't know. It just, it just happened. He said, I was just done. So I don't really have a complete, I don't have a full answer for that. You know, I don't know. I think it's a big mystery as to why people get sober, why people continue to relapse. You know, I know some people, I know one woman I'm thinking of, she was doing everything. She was in her program. She was doing the work. She was contacting other people. She was working with others, kind of like you do. And Mm. boom, she went out. That was after 10 years. Mm. So, but I will say this, that I think there are three reasons people go out. And maybe this, I'd love to know from you if this is like keeping secrets, not continuing the recovery program, whatever it is, whether it's 12 step or rational recovery or what you do, something not mm. not continuing with the program or medication that's gotten out of hand. You know, people take painkillers and things like mm. that as needed, and that can get out of hand. So those three reasons seem to be the reason why a lot of people go out as mm. far as relapsing. I don't know. But but as far as you, you had three and a half years. Did you, did you say that? Three and a half years? Yeah, I went three and a half years. And then mine was, um, I got divorced from a 15-year marriage, 20-year relationship. And then I fell in love again. And I had this, um, just this real worry. It was very, very unhealthy and dysfunctional. But this really uh, inner child part of me that uh, was really worried that uh, this new person that I found would leave me if she didn't find me interesting and that I would, and this was my one and only shot. <laughs> like I, like I, I remember telling myself that I was ugly, that all the best women in the world were taken. And so there was a, there was a real unhealthy part of me that was getting, was, was basically latching onto my wife um, in a bid to not feel so lonely right? Like how selfish is that when you think about it in a cold light of day, right? So I just got terrified and I drank in order for her not to um, find me uninteresting, which was bizarre because he just thought I was the right idiot. And it was actually my son, my 10-year-old son at the time who said, dad, I thought he told me that alcohol had no value. I was like, yeah. And he's like, what are you you drinking for? And um, I think the whole embarrassment of it with my son really you know after that i i haven't had a uh, anything to drink for over 10 years and i i don't even think about it um but interestingly when i gave up smoking it was uh, an external motivator that so i i tried and failed so many times relapsed so many times stopping smoking. i thought it was the hardest thing in the world and then um my wife got pregnant with my son i'm like okay i'm done i'm never going to smoke again uh, and I never have in, and he's 22. Um, and I never, and this is where me and you may differ a little bit. So I never craved cigarettes from the moment I made the vow to stop. And I never craved alcohol from the moment that I vowed to stop, other than that isolated incident when my wife left me. So, you know, my, I steer more away from the genetic side of it being a big thing for me. Because I can't get over the question of like the genetics and the whole biology of addiction. I, I I can't get over the hurdle that one minute I'm an absolute freaking addict that cannot stop. And then I read a book and the next day I have no craving. 
like like for me it's like biologically how is that possible i don't know the answer it's not one that i go down a rabbit hole really looking at but it, it does mean that i'm more more apt to focus more on thoughts and feelings versus biology if that makes sense absolutely and i think that this idea of it's a great point that you make right because cravings are a physical they're a biological event right so how does that happen where one day you have that and the next day you don't i, I didn't either i kind of was done with smoking it was really tough i i really identify with that i gave up mm. smoking five years in oh my god it was harder than giving up drinking but um but yeah, you bring up a really good point. And Dan Siegel, if you know who he is, he's written a the, number of great um, books. Child, number of uh, mind sight. He's written, yeah, he's he's written a number of books. He talks about he he says the mind is a relational and an embodied process that regulates the flow of energy and information. So that's a rela- It's a process, right? Your mind, the brain is this physical structure. So those are two different things in his Mm. world. And I believe that too. So some people, when they get sober, and you probably, if you've been to a 12-step program, some people think, oh, I was struck sober. This this psychic change happened. In some ways it happened to me, I think, but but mine was very slow. But so so the psychic, some people believe that it's this spiritual kind of event. And that says, you know, like you had, you said, I read a book and then I had the next day, I just had no craving at all. So I would say if, if I'm talking to somebody who has a problem with this idea of sort of this psychic change that has no basis in science or biology, or that's basically a spiritual event. If they have a problem with that, it's okay to say, Hey, what it, your brain, like it sounds like you, your brain took in some information. Yeah. Right. And there was a process that happened with you in this book and maybe what you were thinking about. And boom, it just had that much of an effect on you physically. I mean, Mm. how often has somebody now I'm just thinking, how often has somebody said something to me when I've been down? They say something, I can take it in and I feel better. Mm. You know, so so I guess what I'm saying is this idea of there there it some people have all different ways of looking at getting sober whether it's a spiritual whether yeah. it's and that's the beautiful thing about it there are so many different ways right exactly there are mm. so many different ways and people will find what resonates with them and i support anything that helps and as far as it being like oh it's the disease or the biology i just say if it's a problem for you in your life doesn't matter what the origin is, a dysfunctional belief, think, whatever it is, do you know what? Just stay sober a day and then start to sit with yourself a little bit, connect with others, and that'll all work itself out if we do that over enough days. I'm going to share a couple of things with you, re- reflections on that, actually, that, that come up, I think, are important. Mine, mine wasn't, uh, I've, I've interviewed people who've had that spiritual you know, they've been to a meeting or some things happen and it's like a, a almost, almost like a their decision to stop drinking is a spiritual event. Mine wasn't quite like that. I, I think for me, there was a perfect storm of lots of different things happening at the same time that, uh, that led to me looking at this addiction differently. And I'm going to ask you about addiction in a, in a minute when I turn to your book, actually. But before I do that, one, one of the things that I'm 
I have a working theory on at the moment because I'm seeing it more and more, and certainly within myself, is my dysfunction and my trauma actually ended up being used for the for a, a power of good. It, it, it enabled me to defeat um, addiction. So one of my dysfunctions and inner child issues and traumas is being controlled or being told what to do or feeling dominated by somebody, right? Or being at a disadvantage that I can do nothing about. So when I was young, people call me a chink. And I was like, I had a real problem with that because I can't help the fact that I'm 53% um, Chinese. There's nothing I can do about it. And how unfair is that? That you're making me feel like I'm different. So I I don't like con- to be controlled. When I read the book, it was Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking Permanently. And I believed him that there was no value in smoking. Like I, I went through the thought experience myself. I physically smoked cigarettes. And I asked for the first time in 20 years, do I like this? When I realized there was no value in it, and I realized that actually the only reason I was smoking is because I was addicted to nicotine. I had a real problem with that. And I was able very, very quickly to just say that that is not my reality anymore. Like I am, I'm done with this thing controlling me. I'm very similar to alcohol. Like when I made the decision to stop drinking alcohol, I just said, this thing is not controlling me anymore. So I kind of use my dysfunction. I don't like to be controlled. I'm not going to let this thing control me. At the same time, that same dysfunction creeps into my relationship with my wife, where I'm like, you're not going to try to control me. And it's a mess, just to let people know that. The other thing that I wanted to say was um, one of my recent struggles on off has been sugar. I wouldn't even call it, it's not a struggle, a choice. I choose to eat lots of sugar a lot, and then I choose to stop. And recently I said to myself, okay, I'm not going to eat sugar in October, um, but I'm going to do this differently because I know that I can do it, but I'm going to do it differently. I'm actually going to be really, really focused and dialed in on my cravings. And do you know what I found, Joy? What? There's, there's nothing going on. What do you mean? Like, I, I mean, the clock strikes seven. I put my daughter to bed. I walk into the kitchen like a robot. I get ice cream and I eat it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not laughing, but yes, I'm <laughs> right? laughing. Yeah. <laughs> When I when I am then focused <laughs> and trying to dissect the craving, I ask myself, how am I feeling? What's going on in my body right now? Good. <laughs> and I'm realizing there's nothing going on there that is craving and desiring ice cream. I'm just going to get ice cream because I'm the guy who gets ice cream at night. Now, this is just me. It might be different to everybody else. Similar thing with alcohol and cigarettes for me. There was no battle with a craving because there was no craving. I was just an automon. I was a robot. I was I was just, this was almost like uh, you got about ritualizations in your book. This was a negative ritualization that once I broke it and I just said to myself, no, you can only go and have ice cream if the world is going to end if you don't have ice cream. There's no world-ending event going on inside his body. So my challenge to anyone listening is, Hey, just 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 get present a moment. And I know that we all have this story that cravings are like tsunamis and they go up and they just but just what is it for you? Not the books, not the stories, not the podcast, not the the 12 steps, everyone telling you what they do in another. What is going on for you? And I and I think a lot of people bypass it. 
and just go straight to drink when I think they really do have the power within them. It's not a tsunami. Sometimes it's going to be a ripple and you can deal with a ripple. Absolutely. I mean, you described like what the de- what at least I think the definition of recovery, this process of being able to observe my thoughts and my feelings, slow down enough, mm. and my actions then progressively align with what I value and I hold dear. You don't, you want a healthy body, it sounds like. You don't want to do that. Mm. And what a beautiful description of, I mean, you really have the beautiful way of describing and tying the drinking, the smoking and the sugar, all those things. It sounds like they were, in a sense, just habits. And I don't mean that to minimize it, because I think, no, no, they, we, they were. you know, they're habit, but they're destructive, right? And mm. from what I know is people that have this compulsive personality that, you know, we want to channel this creative energy, but often it's destructive. It's self-destructive. And I would say addicts are notoriously self-destructive, right? When they're drinking and then when they sober up, they get these crazy relationships. They're they're overeating. God knows I did my, all of my share of that. I smoked, mm-hmm. I drank, and I didn't, wouldn't go to meetings unless I had donuts and cigarettes and coffee, you know? So I totally get that. So the idea is to take some other actions, but we have to like slow down enough like you did, take the time. I remember when I had, I was like, okay, I had upgraded from gallons of ice cream to, and I talk about that, the ice cream attic in the, you know, but gallons of ice cream to, you know, only fructose to then I would do only, you know, yogurt, frozen yogurt, right? And I'd call this person, I'd say, I can't stop this yogurt. And she'd say, oh, (laughs) All you need is a little love. Mm. All you need is love. Why don't you stop? You know, it's like I, 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 I was, and then it was like one day I just, you know what I did? As I visualized, it's like what I did with smoking. I visualized my lungs getting pink again. So I used, you know, you used, you sat and you really thought about what, what your motive was and mm. what it was, what it was doing for you. And, and you said that there was nothing. There was, you looked at your craving. What I did was I, to stop it, I had to visualize something different for myself, my body, my lungs getting pink again. Do I really want to put all those chemicals in my body? Like mm. now that I was in frozen yogurt, but I thought, okay, no sugar. If I use all that chemical stuff, that'll, that's an upgrade. Well, it really isn't. But, you know, I just visualized my organs working so hard. I almost gave them these personalities. They're working very hard to keep this body healthy. Mm-hmm. And then I'm just dumping crap in it. So that's how I did it. That's how I got over my secondary addiction of, of food, actually of Mm. sugars. And, um, it was really painful. That was really hard. And it's not a problem for me today. It's really a non-issue. And I'm so grateful for that. I I really never thought, I thought I would be doing that the rest of my life because we, we've got to eat. I think what you just explained there is like super powerful and, um, it actually, it actually loops in Dan Siegel a little bit because, you know, if we if we have this emotional brain and we have this rational brain and when we're in the craving state or when we're using and we're in this emotional brain, it's it's impossible to get into that rational brain. It's impossible to say, OK, and I've been there and I've taught people this like it's like, OK, you're craving. Right. Is there any value in alcohol right now? You're asking somebody who's who's like deeply in an emotional state 
to switch into this rational state. When instead, what I'm hearing you say, which I think is really powerful, tell me if I'm on the wrong train, is, okay, so now you're feeling anxiety, stress, a fear, and all these other emotions that are leading to you to crave. Stay in that emotional mindset, but change your emotions. So think about your ideal, visualize what you want to become, and feel the emotions and sensations of that new body. Feel the emotions and sensations of that new person, right? The joy and the happiness and the love and the health of the of the um the pink lungs you know feel the freedom of getting the air in so now you can stay in that kind of part of your brain but you're just focusing on different types of emotions if that makes sense right right but but sometimes the pain like you may you talk about because i actually in my want communication it's like the the emotional and the rational right emotional can't handle pain. It wants to do everything to, to take that sugar mm. and feel good. The rational, you know, feel, think, act, not feel, react, think later. Mm. So if I'm having a feeling and it's painful, that's rational. Then I can actually sort out what is it that I want and what is it I don't want. And then I can act from there. I've got to slow it down long enough. So emotional is cannot handle pain. Rational is can handle pain. Emotional is run by shoulds, like those bad shoulds. You should, you should not eat that. You should not eat that. You should eat this. You should blah, 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 blah. No. And rational is, what is it that I want? What is it that I don't want? I want to be able to put my kid away, go watch TV, enjoy the evening with my wife or do whatever, right? Mm. So, and, and then emotional is also this idea of criticism and guilt, like, but rational is What's the cost factor? What's the price? And what's the prize? So I actually have that in a chart somewhere. So this emotional side of ourselves is, can be like this animal side of ourselves that is fight, fight, flee, freeze without thinking, habitual. Mm. And the rational is feel, have an emotion. Hey, what am I? Dialysize my emotions. So now I, have my, I can name the feeling and what is it I want? What is it I don't want? And then I can act. Mm, I like that. So did I lose you? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. It, 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 what I picked, well, there's something that I always um, talk to my clients about. I, I think it's from Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning is that it's, it's putting a gap in between stimulus and response, right? Like something's happened. I'm going to eat sugar. Or I'm going to drink. Or I'm going to smoke. Or I'm going to take cocaine. And that usually that, that gap between stimulus and response is really short. Like we are a robot, right? We just go into it. It's like the brain's like, that's what we do because that just happened. And it's it's reading your book and using the tools that you've got in there, for example, to just give yourself a pause. And the more you can give yourself that pause, the less likely you are to go for the old response and the more likely you can replace it with something else. That's what I was thinking about when you were just talking about that then, you know? So the recovery cycle, a practical guide to loving your sober life. Why, why that book, that title, and why on earth did you even? Why did you go down this route of giving back? <laughs> because a lot of people they just they just get on with it and and that's it. They just go on being a farmer or whatever. They don't write books. What what was it about you that you went up to the next level? Well, I was in a graduate class and I saw somebody. <clears throat> I mean, I didn't saw the professor wrote. It, it, on a whiteboard, he put, I love whiteboards, he put the addiction cycle up on the whiteboard. And as he was explaining it, 
I had I had many years of recovery at that time. I really, in my mind's eye, I saw the recovery cycle just sort of fall into the place, sort of as a complementary teaching tool to show students or professors or anybody in recovery what the process of recovery will look like, what it entails. It's basically a a visual representation of an emotional journey. And as the addiction cycle is, it's a visual representation of this hellish journey, right? Mm -hmm. So the recovery cycle is just this visual reputation uh, representation where you can see the recovery, you can see where you are in recovery and how, if you've gotten off track to insert yourself back into some re- the process of recovery, regardless of what program. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was really valuable, especially now when there's so many ways to get sober, so many different kinds of programs. There's there's yours, the Strive Minute, there's there's Sober Curious, there's which isn't really a program, but it's um mm-hmm. but it's a, it's an entree into whatever program you choose. There's so many different options out there now. So I thought it was something I had to do. You know, I just because recovery is my life. You talked about with your wife. I mean, my husband and I practice, you know, our recovery in our home. You know, when we're both triggered at the same time, we take a break. Mm-hmm. We, t- we pause. We we separate. One of us mm-hmm. might be triggered. One of us not. It's okay. We can kind of man. We can kind of deal with that. So um, so anyway, to to answer your question, I think I answered your question that it's this. It's a process. It's not a mm-hmm. program. And within that, I think, uh, you know, where addiction cycle leads to isolation, recovery cycle leads to connection because part of it is relationship as being part of that focus I talk about. And uh, we find relationships in these recovery rituals with other sober people. We take a lot of contrary action to change our life, you know, slow down enough like you, you, you change our life. We quit secondary addictions we become the people we want to be, and then we look get to tolerate and have the capacity to experience an expanded range of feelings. I mean, that's basically it in a nutshell. Mm. And with that comes a greater sense of connection. And I believe to self, to others, and to whatever you happen to believe in, if it's something spiritual in nature. You you have a piece in your book about recovery rituals, and I like that because we obviously have we have our addictive rituals, and they're really super powerful. Um, so yeah, flipping the coin would be equally as powerful. Talk about that a little bit. Recovery rituals. So recovery rituals are activities and I would say behaviors that support a recovery program. So activities I like to think of is, is yes, you can meditate on your own with a book or like you, you found the book with your smoking, but for the primary addiction activities could include that, but I would say they need to include other people, other mm. sober people. So, and with with connecting with other sober people, we learn all kinds of things. I know in my experience, I have we learned not only how to you know stay sober and maintain sobriety, but as you know, you've been sober a long time. It's more than just not drinking. I mean, if if it was just that, that would be you know if we were just focusing on that, that's not a great place to be. You end up just a dry drunk, right? It, mm. it requires much more than just not drinking. I think. We have a lot of energy. Compulsive people do. Compulsive people usually end up with the ones that are drinking a lot or using a lot. So these rituals help, I think, define a greater a greater sense of what I... First of all, they, they provide people that are sharing their experience, right? So if other people are sharing their experience with me, whether in a group or one-on-one, 
I'm now hearing somebody else's thought process about life, about all kinds of things, not just about drinking, but about how they deal with at work, how they are in their relationships. And by hearing that, I think the recoverer, myself included, we can then start to do that with our own selves, like you did. We can kind of sit with our own self and reflect on how do I relate to that? What do I do? Hmm. And so I think these recovery rituals are really important just for this idea of being able to have a sense, learning how to reflect on our own thoughts and feelings, being able to sit and observe them. And yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of things about recovery rituals. And there's so many, there's so many different kinds now. It's like calling your sober person, going to your sober coach, running something by somebody, calling somebody every day, going and sitting in a meeting. There's all kinds of rituals Mm. out there to do. Mm. Uh, It's just a matter of finding the one Oh, the most important part has got to have meaning for you. Like I, if I'm going to go do a ritual, I, like I remember going to church and saying, why are we getting sitting down and standing up in these pew? Why are we sitting? I don't understand the guy. He's speaking in Latin, like it had no meaning for me. So these recovery rituals need to have some sort of meaning and they need to speak to me personally for me to engage with them and with the people in a meaningful way. And I'm mm. not, might not like everybody at these rituals. So I've got to find or I don't have to, but it would be good for me to find the people that where I feel supported and feel cared for that mm. I care about. Yeah. The word that came up for me then was enjoyment. So I uh, always used to say to uh, strivers, you know, don't forget. So the strive method is like six months long. It's like over 120 assignments. Right. And I'm like, keep doing it, keep embrace the grind and, you know, get, get into it and enjoy it, have fun. And, and people would say, it's not fun. And I would say, well, if you could find a way to make it fun, I mean, like, you know, a ritual needs to be meaningful. I think a ritual in itself is something that is practiced and to the degree that it becomes really important to you. And it is something that is, um, uh, it's going to be very difficult for you not to do it. Like, you know what I mean? But I think in that is enjoyment. I, I, I enjoy sitting down in a room of a hundred people and telling them my deepest, deepest, darkest secrets. Like I, I, I enjoy it. Like I, I feel a sense of release. I feel a sense of connection. And it's so interesting to me that some, someone else could just be absolutely horrified, <laughs> horrified about that. But I've yet to meet anybody who gets to the other side of it. And then we say, so how does it feel now that doesn't say, well, actually, it feels pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it feels it feels good now, right? Like it's it's um, rituals. Yeah, enjoy. Yeah, but you know what? And rituals can be fun. It's like they don't like yes. if, if if I'm finding meaning and just having having a laugh with somebody at the joke or at at whatever is being said, that is enough. Yeah, you know that is enough. I remember in the beginning, like I said, I didn't talk very long. I just didn't talk out loud. I just hung out with people that I felt safe with and. Mm. You know, we had a lot of fun. What is it in your book that you're most proud of? The the, the thing there that um, you know, we're all we're all con artists, right? We all like rip off and borrow and steal bits and bobs that we either got from AA or we got from Alan Carr's book, but then we put a little spin on it, and that, that that's that's kind of mine. Like I I merged this 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 and created mine, and I'm really proud of that. You know, so for me with the Stride Method, my my understanding, philosophical understanding of what I call the invisible, violent, dominant belief system, right? I'm really proud of that, right? What is it that you're really proud of that, that you know really helps people 
um, that you can stamp and say, yeah, that's joy and realities. The cycle itself, mm. because the cycle itself is something I see is like this great teaching tool, which I use here. And it is completely, I don't even want to call it mine. It was completely inspired and came from somewhere, but it's not anywhere else. So mm. that, but what I do know is rituals, like, uh, you know, spiritual practices are support this idea of recovery rituals. A contrary action, there's studies that support that that's actually beneficial. You can desensitize to uh, what, what might feel painful or fearful, and you can move beyond it. So there's studies that support that. Um, I'm, I'm actually thinking maybe I, I need to do a study on this to see if these four points really correlate to long-term, longer-term sobriety and mm. actualization, which I, I think they do. So what I'm proud of is this, this creation and that I completed it and didn't let it didn't let it just be an idea in my head because, you know, you can have a creative idea. Yeah. You're a creative person. Yeah. Sometimes I just let those things go. Mm. And when I first started college, but first year in sobriety, the teacher said to me, a professor said to me, I wrote a story. She said, oh, I don't think you're a very good writer. And I thought, or something like, that's what I heard. I don't think she mm. said those words, yeah, but yeah. that's what I heard. I converted it, right? And I put that away for a long time. and. I kept doing what I was doing and I went to the other field, but I'm so, I'm so glad that I completed this particular project because a recovery, I think is just a mind blowing trip and so fun and so painful at the same time. It's a paradox, right? Mm. And I completed something that I set out to do. And I've learned a lot along the way about myself, about publishing, about how to write, how to be a better writer, how to communicate better. And I've taken a lot of contrary action to stretch. And for me, that's what my whole life is about, is, is just stretching in ways that are going to help me grow and help me in particular grow spiritually, meaning connecting with others and carrying a message that I think is is really important one to carry. Mm. Well, I'm glad you came on today to convey that message. It's been really great talking to you, getting to know you. Do you know what? I got all my hands up here. I didn't I didn't even know you'd sent me a copy of your book. My apologies. I actually put in my Asana to download it and start reading it tonight. So I apologize. Oh, you know, know what? You may want to you may want to consider reading my book. And having me back to talk a little more okay. about it. We, 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 will, we, will, we will hear that, Joy. We I think you'll that. like it. Yeah. I think you like it. Check me out. And um, yeah, it's really, it's really, uh, I'm very proud of it. And I think you'll like it. I think it'll resonate with you, with who you are. You've really, mm. um, it's been a really a pleasure talking to you and hearing what your story is. And I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you. I mean, anybody who gets a book out there, you know, that that's pushing yourself to your comfort zone and breaking through to the other side, you know, and that those things, I found those things really important, you know, for me, yeah, it was massive being someone that doesn't drink alcohol. It was huge for me, but then quitting my job was massive. Going through a divorce was huge. Falling in love again, massive. Creating my own company, massive. That boulder just kept on rolling, which meant it was really difficult for me to go back. Because the momentum that I was picking up, and and it sounds like you were doing the same thing, so I really honor you for that. Yeah, you back at you. Mm. And you're in California, yeah? 
I'm in California. Yeah. Well, I will be there yeah. soon. So I'll check you out. We'll, uh, we'll yeah. go and have a cup of tea. Yeah. All right. So nice to meet you. And you, Joy. You take care of yourself. <laughs> okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to the 1000 Days Sober Podcast. Without you, the listener, there is no podcast. So thank you for stepping up today. Please go to your podcast player, rate and review the show. It will help people get to know about it a little bit more and we can save some more lives. I just want to say a special thanks to our producer, Stan, who is currently in the Ukraine. If you would like to help and support Stan and his family, email us at thestrivemethod at gmail.com and we'll find a way to do that. Special thanks to all of our guests who make this show so magical and our Strive family for uniting in our common goal to be people who don't drink alcohol and live self-led lives. And if you want to join us, email us at thestrivemethod at gmail.com. And lastly, if you enjoyed this show, tell somebody about it. You could seriously change somebody's life. Strive on, everybody.